you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 26. Our Old Testament reading will be Genesis 26, verses 6 through 16. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich, and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Thus far the reading of God's word. You turn in Matthew, chapter 5. We'll read Matthew 5, 13 through 16. We've closed our time in the Beatitudes. We come now to uh, the next portion of our Lord's teaching uh, in this Sermon on the Mount. This is the Word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. I invite you to join me in prayer. Uh, Father, your word is a, a light and a lamp. I buy it. Uh, you warn and instruct us, and herein in Holy Scripture we have the gospel set forth, and the glory on display in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who has come to rescue out of darkest night, uh, who has come as the light of the world. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would 
uh, be pleased to exalt the Son and his ongoing purposes as our King and your ongoing purposes in magnifying your name in our King and gathering and purifying a people for yourself. I pray you would attend our hearts even now that the truth would be declared and set forth plainly and that our hearts would be nourished, our faith would be nourished and strengthened and that we would be built up as your people. And we ask that you would do these things in Christ's name, amen. You probably hear these verses and much like I did, you remember the children's song, This Little Light of Mine. I don't know if you anticipated this passage, but that was one of the earliest songs that I could remember, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And then there was a hand motion about hiding it under the bushel, and then a very emphatic no. And I was confused at that point because we were told not to say no as children. (laughs) It was this refusal to hide this little light, and uh, for all of its good intentions, Uh, there's both truth and silliness involved in that little song. Uh, You're led as a child to think that you were the little light. Um, It's worth noting that all of these are plurals. Uh, You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. The primary impact of this text isn't you as an individual letting your light shine before others. Um, But the church as a God's new creation light. The church as the kingdom of the beloved son, the kingdom of light, uh, as God's work of witness bearing, just as the heavens declare his glory, they bear witness to who he is in his ineffable goodness, so good, ineffable wisdom, so wise, ineffable majesty, so big. So also the church now as the new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ bears witness to this God. But there is a sense in which as the church we're invited to say that emphatic no. (laughs) We're not going to hide. No, we're not going to apologize for this distinctive witness that Christ is working among us. This distinct difference that comes to us as we have been baptized into the name. We have brought, been brought to share in his life. And we now walk by that life. Something different does emerge. And it's beset on every side by the call not to be different. Not to have that light and that life manifest in this world that is in love with death and darkness. And so we can redeem a portion of the song and issue that emphatic no. (laughs) The Lord's work will continue in and among us. And it is the work of bearing testimony to who he is as God, as Father, as Creator, as Redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The astonishing fact is that we're most intimate 
intimately involved in this. You are the light of the world. That's a shocking statement, isn't it? If your mind doesn't go to that little childhood ditty, perhaps it goes to John's gospel where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. <laughs> you can almost see someone raising their hand and be like, no, you are the light of the world. <laughs> Jesus says, no, you are the light of the world. And they go back and forth. <laughs> Matthew has already said that Jesus is the light of the world. He said that in Matthew 4 when he says that those dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And that light is the Lord Jesus Christ. Light is already featured in Matthew's gospel. The little light of the star leading the magi. Those enmeshed in darkness to worship at the bedside of the true light. Jesus is the light of the world. What's so stunning here is our intimacy with the light. The intimacy of the kingdom with the king, the people, with the head, us, to our Lord and Savior. Such that what is preeminently true of him can meaningfully be said of us. And this by God's great grace. So we're to make four observations on this well-known text. The first is that the church is different. <laughs> The second, that the church is beneficial. The third, that the church is vulnerable. And fourth, that the church is unto God's glory. So one, the church is different. Or the church is distinct from the world. That's the most obvious and general sense of our Lord's words. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You can press into both of those images, salt and and light. But before you do, I don't want you to miss the most basic truth. These are distinct elements. They're different from that to which they are added, that to which they are exposed. The church is different. She's distinct. And scripture is everywhere plain about this. That you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're not recognized the world. And in this we share once more in the reality that our king experienced as the one who was not recognized by the world. Now, there's a great many ways in which the church is not different. In general, we have the same jobs. We wear the same clothes. We drive the same cars and so on and so forth. You're not going to find the difference there. You're going to find accountants in our midst. IT specialists, managers, drivers of Toyotas and Hondas and Volvos here and in the world. That's not where the difference is. Another way in which we are not different is that we share in this same world of sin and misery. We're subject as the people of God to the same calamities, the same difficulties, the same futilities, the same frustrations. Death comes to us all, disease comes to us all, famine comes to us all, war comes to us all. We are all partakers of the same lot in this sad world of woe. Our difference isn't to be found there. Further, our difference is not in that we don't sin or that sin no longer clings to us. Jesus is going to teach later in this very gospel how the church is to comport themselves, saying, hey, when your brother sins against you, forgive them, implying what? That the reality of sin in the church has not been completely done away with. 
This is worth pointing out because the church has gotten this wrong at various points. You can think of the controversy that John is weighing into in 1 John. Look, if anyone says that they don't have sin in them, the truth is not in them. Christians can go wrong at this point. You think that somehow, because we've been baptized into the death of Christ, that sin is no longer a part of our reality. Now, fundamentally, our relationship to sin has changed in that our sin has been pardoned, that we have partaken in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, such that our sin has been mortified and is increasingly diminishing in its influence. But we would be mistaken and set ourselves up for failure if we thought that our difference consisted in the fact that we know nothing of sin's dreadful influence. Such an insistence would set us up for self-righteousness and delusion of the grossest order. But all of that doesn't downplay the fact that there are fundamental ways in which we are different. And they start with this. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Every single one of you calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, upon whom he has placed his name. You belong to the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. That's where the difference starts. That we are a people who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Paul puts this difference using a similarly striking image in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, that's different. (laughs) What does Paul say? He says that we're a part of a different kingdom altogether. That we're made partakers, we're citizens of a different kingdom altogether. And this transfer, this rescue has taken place in the beloved Son who has given his life as a ransom, who forgives, who redeems. It's like being rescued from enslavement to Mordor (laughs) and now finding yourself established as a son of Gondor. It's like being rescued from the service of the white witch and now you're a servant of Aslan. Formerly we belonged to darkness, we belonged to death, we belonged to sin. Sin had dominion over us. But by the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son has rescued us from such a dreadful reality. And he has made us participants in a blessed reality, the kingdom of God, over whom our blessed Lord and Savior reigns. Peter uses a similarly striking image in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter delights in the difference that the church experiences in this world, and he expands it to eternity past. He says, you're elect. He says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not a recent development. It is the outworking of the Father placing his love upon you before all worlds. 
That's a difference to be delighted in. It's one which brings great encouragement. But Peter says it also manifests itself in a new life, a new manner of life to proclaim his excellencies, proclaiming the excellencies of the one who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a new song. We have a new heart to worship the one who has bestowed upon us the riches of forgiveness, the riches of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, we're different. I don't know that I would wish being different upon anyone. It sets up an incredibly uncomfortable life. Perhaps when you were in school, you can remember being different. (laughs) Were you different in school? If you were, you probably have some issues from childhood that you haven't worked through yet because it's a remarkably uncomfortable thing to be different. (laughs) The astonishing statement here is that we're different at this fundamental level because God has set his love upon us. Because he's placed us in the beloved son. Because he's pardoned our sin, which we've inherited from Adam and exercise in the baseness of our heart. And he set us a new portion, a new inheritance in this kingdom of light. All of these things make up the difference that our Lord has in mind here. He says, you're different because you belong to me. You're different because you're following me. You're different because you're going to be with me forever. Church, you're different. And in that is your blessing. Two, the church is beneficial to the world by virtue of her difference. And this is true whether or not anyone recognizes it. Again, if we stay at the general level of these images of salt and light, both of these elements are remarkably useful. (laughs) They're incredibly beneficial. Now, salt has different potential symbolic extensions to it. Salt is a preservative. Salt is a purifier. Salt is an enhancer. But the one thing all those registers have in common is salt is wonderful. (laughs) Salt is useful. There's an even stronger statement from intertestamental literature. The world cannot endure without salt. If you woke up this morning and thought, Lord, thank you for salt. Probably not. (laughs) It's not an overstatement to say that not just salt is beneficial, salt is essential. Salt's not a luxury. Salt's a necessity, particularly for the ancient world. And not just for them. I mentioned we're reading the Little House in the Prairie series. They didn't have refrigerators. How did you preserve meat? You had to salt it. Salted meat was the only way you could keep meat for an extended period of time. Or perhaps you've had the experience of trying to eat a piece of chicken without salt. It's dreadful. (laughs) It's pure torture. If you put a little salt on there, it becomes something that's palatable. It's not a steak. Chicken will never be steak. There's one glory to one, another glory to another. This too is biblical. 
put some salt on a steak and the Lord is good. <laughs> salt is useful, beneficial, and even essential. I don't know that we should even press the image to its particular symbolic value. The Lord doesn't with the image of salt. You'll find people trying to figure out, okay, does the, does the church preserve the world? Does the church purify the world? Does the church enhance the God flavors of the world? I think those are all a little misguided. Jesus doesn't ask us to consider the effect of salt on the world. Rather, he considers the danger of salt becoming useless, salt losing its distinctiveness. Light, on the other hand, is remarkably self-evident in its usefulness. Without light, you can do nothing. Without light, you die. You see nothing. You're vulnerable. You stumble. You're going to be harmed. Without light, you cannot live. So again, the remarkable statement in both of these Verses is that you are these things. You yield this blessing and benefit to the world as the people of God. And that means the church is necessary to the world for God's purposes. So in what way does the church yield these blessings and benefits to the world? In what way is the church a benefit to the world? What does he have in mind here? It'd be tempting just to see this as a sort of blank check to just go be useful. <laughs> well, we're supposed to be useful. So is it useful? Then go and do it. And we might find in this justification for all sorts of worthy acts. But that's not what Christ is teaching here. He's saying that your Christian distinctive is the useful and beneficial part. The fact that you belong to me, the fact that I'm working in you, the very portrait that I just set forth in the Beatitudes, that's what's useful. That's what's beneficial. There's lots of people, lots of groups that are relatively useful and beneficial by God's common grace. Lots of people, lots of endeavors, lots of groups that are yielding a relative benefit to mankind. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that the church is the only group that is of eternal benefit to mankind. By virtue of God's work among us, bearing witness to his son and the forgiveness and the life that comes in his gospel. And so if you're going to sum up how the church is beneficial to the world, under one heading, you would say that she is beneficial in her witness-bearing. She is beneficial in that her profession that Jesus Christ is Lord bears witness to the true and living God. She's beneficial in that her life of love evidences the power of and the benevolence of God towards sinners. For this is a life that she has not generated of herself, but rather is the work of a good God towards this world of woe. 
The benefit here that the church yields to the world is that she attests and bears witness to the gospel of Christ by her profession and the life that she works out. But she's also vulnerable, isn't she? That's the third point. The church is vulnerable to losing her distinctive. That's what Jesus warns under both images. If salt loses its taste, what is it good for? And then no one lights a lamp to place it under a bowl. I think the important thing to note here is that both these verses come on the heels of instruction about persecution. In verses 10 through 12, Jesus tells the church that inevitably you're going to experience hostility. As you follow after me, as you make the good profession, it doesn't matter how gently, how much fruit you adorn your life with, there are going to be those who are hostile to this work of life in this world. And so to follow that discussion with this instruction suggests that in the midst of the hostilities for the faith, there's always going to be a temptation to shrink back from the faith. Does that make sense? In the midst of hostilities for the faith, there is the temptation to shrink back from the faith. Anyone who's exercised knows the basic dynamic of this reality. As soon as it becomes uncomfortable, you want to quit. <laughs> Get your heart rate into the 160s. Now I'm done. I miss 60. <laughs> Whatever your resting heart rate is. You start to lift and your muscles start to burn. You're like, no, I'm done. The strange blessing that opens up is through and not back. That's the basic teaching that he sets forth here. That there's blessing to be had through the persecution, not by shrinking back, but by embracing, by pressing on, by owning those distinctions. This is the issue in the book of Hebrews, is it not? The church there was experiencing hostility for following Christ, and so what did they want? Shrink back. Shrink back. If Christ is the reason everybody's so miffed with us, well, then we'll just shrink back from him. We'll downplay our commitment to him, and we'll downplay the exclusive claims that he has. Surely there's room for Christ among all of these other ways will downplay that which offends. The Lord says that's not the way to life. Counterintuitively, the way to life is to embrace that Christian distinctive. So if last week we considered the temptation to provoke and to antagonize, here we're invited to consider the temptation to assimilate and to hide. Last week we wrestled with cruelty. This week we wrestle with cowardice. I think the first thing to note here is that cruelty and cowardice are closely related, aren't they? Both of those are mechanisms of the flesh trying to preserve self, either in fighting or in flying. So there's no solace for us to be had if we can 
convince ourselves that we're not cowards by virtue of the fact that we're cruel. <laughs> One vice is not the substitution for another vice. Virtue is distinct. So what does the cowardice look like here? It's interesting that in each image, the danger is slightly different. In the first, there's the distinctive loss of properties. You become something different. In the second, there's the hiding of properties. So the first danger seems to be assimilation. That seems to be what Paul warns against in Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says, if you've been issued into the life of discipleship, there's going to be this other reality that is continually seeking to disciple you. That's not me. <laughs> the world is going to continue to seek to make image bearers. The image that they're seeking to cultivate is one of death and futility. Paul says just because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't mean that somehow now we are absolutely invulnerable to the world having its way with us. So he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Which seems to me to cast light on what the Lord says here. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, of what use is it? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled by men. That's a really interesting closing statement, isn't it? Especially if you read it in the light of trying to avoid persecution. Why? Because the very thing you're seeking to avoid by downplaying the distinction happens nonetheless. You don't want to be trampled by men, so you downplay the Offense of Christ. And what happens? You become trampled by men. <laughs> you try to adjust your behavior in hopes of avoiding the hostility and harassment, and you're still an object of wrath. This was actually the sad story of the Duke of Northumberland. Do you know the story of John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland? He was a nobleman in the time of King Edward. King Edward VI became king. He was nine years old. And so the Duke of Northumberland effectively reigned in his stead. And he was a Protestant and a relatively good man. And so when King Edward came into power, he looked after him. He cared for him with a few other nobles. But then when King Edward died, and it seemed that Mary was about to become king, the Duke of Northumberland tried to get, uh, what's her name, Jane Grey? Is that her name? Jane Grey was his daughter-in-law onto the throne. Poor Jane Grey. She had a terrible fate. So he tried to install Jane Grey as queen, and that didn't work out. And so then when that didn't work out, the Duke of Northumberland decided to convert to Roman Catholicism. And that didn't work out, because Queen Mary put him to death immediately. Try to appease. <laughs> Try to assimilate. Try to go with the trend that's now in power to not die and you die. Mm -hmm. The call of the Christian is not to adapt to every changing wind and fad. She thinks that this means her survival, but ultimately it means her destruction. 
We've seen that play out in the church, haven't we? Again, remember, these are corporate realities here. This is on the order and magnitude of John writing to the churches saying, look, I'm going to remove your lampstand if you don't get it together. It doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. It means that there is a corporate witness that the church bears insofar as she clings to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to the degree that she departs from that truth is the degree to which she does not bear that witness. And that happens in churches. Certain developments take place in human thought, and then all of a sudden these orthodox doctrines become passe. It's like, oh, we can't believe in the virgin birth. We're sorry. We don't really believe it. It's just a myth. So we downplay that. And it's like, okay, well, if that's out, what else is out? The two natures of Christ. Well, that's out. How can he be God and man? That doesn't make any sense. Substitution atonement's out because God's just a child abuser then if he's the one who ultimately punished Christ. And so all of these offenses that the world feels at the gospel, the church is like, well, how can we figure out a way to downplay that offense? And she serves no one when she does that. Christ says, look, the truth that I'm giving you is going to make you different. It's going to be uncomfortable. But as long as it's the truth, then you don't have to shrink back from the discomfort. You can know that the discomfort comes because people hate the light because their works are evil. The second danger is hiding. That's how I take the distinct warning in the light portion. He says, no one lights a lamp and then places it under a bowl. It's worth noting, first of all, that God's the one who lights the lamp. (laughs) You didn't light the lamp. I didn't light the lamp. (laughs) He lit the lamp. So it's his purposes which come to the foreground. And that's a blessed point of reference. The chief end of man is to glorify God. That it's his purpose which is ultimately determinative. So as much as I'd like to withdraw from you sinners and do my own thing in the contemplative life, I can rest assured that that's a bad plan. (laughs) And not only that, it's not God's plan and purpose. There's a public dimension to the church's life that is of the design of God. There's been attempts throughout the church's history to completely withdraw from society. They have always gone poorly. (laughs) They've never worked out because part of the design is exile in this world of woe and the witness bearing that comes as that life is lived by faith in this sad world. The particular elements or particular movements in the church's history towards monasticism might come to mind, but even those were short-lived and never really worked out. So we can sympathize with the impulse. I trust you can sympathize with the impulse. we got to get away from all these sinners. They're having a terrible influence on us. And so then when we move to another place, only to find out that we brought the sinners with us. (laughs) The enemy is coming from inside the house. The loveliness of God's plan is that he has called you out of darkness to proclaim the excellencies of his light in a world that's still in love with darkness. That the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the life of following him 
at least in part has the intention of bearing witness to a world that is in darkest night. And this is God's kindness unto them. But there's also encouragement in that for us, isn't there? Because if the Lord intends for us to remain in the world, that means he's committed to preserving us in the world. Come on, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. Is that encouraging? Because you look around and you, you feel a hostility in the very ideas. And you think, how on earth is anyone going to be preserved in this? It's so relentless. It's everywhere. It's so intoxicating. It's so subtle. How's anyone going to continue in the faith? And the answer is because God is committed to preserving us in this world. And that's the very thing that Christ prays for in John 17. What does he say? John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's what he prays. That's what Christ prayed for his disciples. I'm not asking that you remove them from this world. Why? Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better to go and be with him? No, because if it was better, he would do it. Because he always does what's best. So he's saying, look, I'm not praying that you take them from the world. I'm praying that you preserve them in the world. That's better. Because it demonstrates a power and a goodness, the likes of which this world doesn't know. Who can keep their own? Who can keep their own? This is a beautiful story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three lads as my British professor school called them, Daniel and the three lads. That's beautifully illustrated right there. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this monument. He says, everybody's got to bow to him. The three lads don't. They get hauled before him. He's like, you got to bow. He's like, look, we don't. We're not going to bow. You kill us. Fine. Our God can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. So Nebuchadnezzar goes into a rage and he heats his furnace well over its intended threshold of heat. And even the men serving Nebuchadnezzar who threw the lads into the fire were devoured by the fire. Nebuchadnezzar could not keep his own. The lads thrown into the fire who belonged to the true and living God were kept. Not only were they preserved as they followed the true and living God in the face of this demand to worship, they were preserved in the fire because he can keep his own. And in keeping his own, he demonstrates to the world a power that the greatest kings of this earth can only stand in awe of. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He said, get him out of there. I'm dealing with someone I don't fully understand. The true and living God. I don't pray that you take them from the world. I pray that you keep them in the world because his purpose is to bear witness to himself. Might not be better in our eyes. It's better in his. And there's great encouragement there because it means he's going to keep us. And it's going to be to his glory. And that's how he ends. 
The church is under the glory of God. The Lord closes telling us exactly what our light is and exactly what purpose it serves. Verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's two wonderful assumptions about this statement. The first is that the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ do good. Not in some sort of sentimental and nebulous and abstract way, but true good. That means there is true good to be found in this world. And that's encouraging. Because so frequently you look out and you think there's no good anywhere. Even your cell phone's trying to kill you. Studies are coming out, right? It's trying to kill you. It's it's trying to kill you. It's like, well, if that evil is in my pocket, where is there any good? It seems to be relentless. Ill seems to be winning. But God says, no, because I'm not done bearing witness to myself. So I purchased for myself a people purified in the Lord Jesus Christ who are lukewarm about good works. No, Paul says zealous for good works. That's what he says in Titus 3, Titus 2. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I don't know that I've ever been zealous for anything. Right here, he says his purpose is to create a people who are zealous for good, true good. Notice that he doesn't say in order to earn my favor. Notice that he doesn't say in order to be justified. Notice that the redemption has already taken place in the purification to redeem us from doing ill. And to usher us into the blessedness of his life, which generates itself among us and manifests itself in good. (laughs) So we can remove the conversation of works from justification. So I hope that deleted it from your thinking. Probably going to have to return to that. The zeal that we have for good is not so that we earn God's favor. The zeal that we have for good is to glorify him for the favor he has poured out upon us. To showcase to a world his infinite and boundless goodness in pardoning our sin and causing a principle of new life to dawn in this world of death. And that's assumed. It's assumed. When he says they're going to glorify your Father in heaven. It means that he's doing it. Why else would they glorify our Father in heaven when they see our good works if it was ultimately us? No, they glorify the source. And it's a magnificent title. He just introduces it here. As far as I know, this is the first occurrence of this title here. And you think about the experience of sitting in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, wait a minute, our Father? We're calling him what? He's introducing your, your this, is a, this, is a, this is a very disorienting passage. <laughs> you are salt. 
You are light. The infinite and eternal God, he's your father. <laughs> Wait, what? This is major. Uh, they're going to glorify our father. Well, why introduce that title here? Why introduce it in the, in the context of our good works? Evidencing something fundamentally different among us, in us, about us, to this world. Because children look like their parents. Because his purpose of bearing witness to himself is by redeeming his image in man as he transforms us more and more into the image of the beloved son who gave his life in love. The reason why the world will ultimately, whether in this life, if God has mercy upon their souls or at the day of visitation, which is what Peter says, say that you are good and evidence of that goodness is on display in the good works of your people is because he's the one who does it at the end of the day. And that's what Paul says. Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But you don't even know, need to go to Paul in Ephesians 2 to evidence the fact that this life of good works is ultimately from God because he calls us light. Who creates light? <laughs> Children? Who created light? Do you remember when light was created? It's almost like he's saying, you're the new creation. The darkness was over the face of the deep, dark, chaos, and then let there be light. He's committed to bearing witness to himself in this world of darkness and chaos, and that's why he sent the true light. That's why we are made partakers of his light. That's why he's committed to forming and fashioning us in the image of this light for his name's sake. Our comfort, our joy, our encouragement that we will be light comes from the fact that God is committed to glorifying himself, <laughs> to speaking light into this world. May he do so more and more until Christ's return. Let's pray. Sanctify us by your word, O Lord. Your word is true. As you have seen it fit to leave us in the world, Lord, preserve us. As you've placed us in the vine, O Lord, may his life be made manifest in our lives. As we make the good profession that Jesus Christ is Lord by the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit, and we continue to bear that fruit, which can come from you and you alone. We ask in Christ's name, amen.